Welcome to the Partnership Economy. This podcast explores the power of partnerships through candid conversations with industry leaders. Join our hosts, Dave Yavano, CEO, and Todd Crawford, co-founder of Impact.com, as they unpack the future of partnerships as a lever for scale and an opportunity to put the consumer first. Welcome back to the Partnership Economy podcast. This is your host, Dave Yavano, and we have an amazing guest lined up for you today. Aaron Dwyer is CMO of an up-and-coming skincare brand with an inspiring story, matter of fact. Her career journey has spanned a diverse range of industries, from beauty, including working at Drunk Elephant and Way, to entertainment, to online gaming. Aaron is passionate about keeping up with the online landscape and staying ahead of e-commerce trends, emerging social media apps, and web platforms. In this episode, we discuss what it really takes to build a brand today, especially in a noisy space like the beauty industry. We compare marketing and customer acquisition to what it was 10 years ago and how this evolution brings about new challenges for modern marketers. We also delve into the rise of influencers and how to effectively work with and compensate them to see success. This is a jam-packed episode and I strongly suggest tuning in. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Aaron Dwyer, CMO of Matter of Fact. Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. Thanks for having me, Dave. Awesome. We're going to unpack who Matter of Fact is here in just a minute, but I thought we can maybe start with you telling the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are as CMO of an up-and-coming skincare company. Sure. I have an unusual background, but a fun one, I think. I started in advertising and general marketing at big agencies like DDB, J. Walter Thompson. And then I kind of pivoted over into digital for a while. I'd heard the internet was going to stick around and some mentors told me to get involved. So I got into digital and then I've been in the beauty industry for the last eight years. Before that, I was in everything from video games, technology, online gambling and online gaming. And now I found my way to the beauty industry eight years ago. And I'm so happy to be a part of this community. I got to ask you this question because I understand you used to be a professional dancer. Did that have anything with you getting into beauty? I love that. Um, Yes, there was definitely a whole other part of my life where I was in a couple of professional dance companies. I actually did marketing for a couple of those dance companies. I love it. So you've had some incredible experience at a very diverse set of companies. Was there a common thread between entertainment, gaming, beauty, dancing that you discovered? I think passion's a key component there. Um, You have to have a lot of passion to do what we do. But I think also the consumer base is extremely passionate. And so when you look at video games and people who play video games, that's a very strong community. It's very passion-based, love and hate-based. You have the same in Mm -hmm. entertainment. People become these ultra fans of whether it's TV shows or entertainment, such as movies, music. And then you have the same thing in the beauty industry. People are extremely passionate. So I love finding passionate consumers and harnessing that to build community and advocacy. And then the other thread of all those industries is they've always kind of been on the cutting edge of innovation and pushing things forward. So whether that be adopting new things like when social media came out or even the internet, when online gambling happened, they were the first to do an only online business model. So being in parts of industries that are willing to kind of challenge, press forward and innovate has always been a a little bit of a thread for me. That's great. So it sounds like, you know, your current role and the timing of this conversation fits perfectly in with acquiring new, passionate consumers. I think people are doing a lot of research now before they're buying products online, for example. 
I know that Matter of Fact just launched in Sephora. Could you tell our audience just a little bit more about Matter of Fact as a company, what it's all about? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the reasons I chose to come to Matter of Fact was the passion of our founder and his unrelenting dedication and commitment to making products that are innovative. So again, passion and innovation was at the heart of this brand and at him when I met him. And so it just was very serendipitous. So Matter of Fact was created out of Paul's own needs. He's our founder and formulator and CEO, Paul Beck. And he is the child of Korean immigrants who came to America with a big dream and worked really hard for his family to have a life here. And that led him to have a lot of time to make things and be home and solve puzzles. And he is just a highly, highly intelligent person with an amazing heart. He was also one of very few Asian Americans in where he grew up. And so when he was introduced to K-pop, he got really excited and he fell in love with K-pop and was like, I want to be a K-pop star. Of course, the child of, of parents who just came to America were like, maybe go to college first. And so he didn't just go to college. You know, he got himself a full ride to Harvard and still put his demo tape on VHS to the different recording labels in Korea. And after getting an internship over there so he could afford his housing because he didn't have enough money for housing, he got picked up for a record deal. And then sometimes when your passions become your reality, and I can say the same thing happened for me when I was dancing, you see things from a different light. And so he became a K-pop star, but then he experienced the real image conscious nature of that industry. And he had very acne prone and oily skin. And the need for him to be perfect by the labels was a lot. It was intense. And he was going to dermatologists. He was trying all kinds of things. And he was always finding that it wasn't one or the other. Either his acne was gone, but his skin was red, irritated, and painful, or he had these terrible breakouts. He's like, there has to be a better way. So being the puzzle solver he is, he started doing his own research. He got on forums. He met his mentors that way. He built his own frameworks for how to deliver the most researched and effective ingredients. He saw that most of the ways it was being done was inefficient. And so he now has over 10 patents that he's written. And here we are. It's an incredibly inspirational story, but, you know, just understanding that challenge as a relatively new brand, really would love to discuss what it takes to really build a brand today, right? It's a very noisy, very crowded space, especially in beauty. What are your current priorities as CMO? What are you focused on right now? Great question. It's hard. Building today is very different than a decade ago, but that's also what's fun about it is because you have to keep iterating and changing. It's one of the reasons I stay in industries like this. So right now we're in test, learn, deploy mode. We are very much in a, let's try it, let's get some information and then decide to double down on it or try something else because there isn't a playbook Mm -hmm. for the way that the world is right now. I think we're building that playbook and it'll last for a little while, but we've been through so much change over the last five years that you have to kind of build it for yourself. We're also in a stage, so each company goes through a variety of needs from a marketing perspective. Zero to $5 million is one phase. Five to 20 million is another, 20 to 100 million is another. Your marketing needs and what gets you to those milestones is very different in each of them. So we're very much in a grassroots meets your brass tax kind of stage, right? We've got to do the basics, but we're also trying different things, referral programs, ambassadors, leveraging our major advocates we have, education, our partnership with Sephora. And then as those kind of exponentially work, then you can invest in some of the more fun things like podcasts and sponsorships and things like that. Um, So we're kind of in that first phase of making the most of kind of that grassroots and brass tax and heavily in customer acquisition, which to your point is really crowded right now. 
there used to be a couple of really easy ways to do that, quite frankly, when Facebook first launched ads. And now it's not. It's really expensive. You need to be churning a ton of revenue to really maximize the data and to be able to optimize on the platform. If you don't have that number of conversions, you're just not getting what you need. So you have to be more creative today. Yeah, and just knowing that the consumer source of information has changed quite a bit. Just curious how people are discovering about your product through other people. And when we talk about like what it really takes to build a brand today, are there any like hard-hitting tips, things that you're realizing that you're experiencing right now just to kind of have matter of fact become known? So there's a few things. One is being consistent. You really need to be consistent with your message. I consider today no longer a funnel. I heard somebody years ago call it a pinball machine and it made total sense. You don't know where your consumer is going to hear your message, whether it's an influencer from your channel, from a press outlet, an affiliate person, a podcast. So you have to be very consistent so that no matter where they bump you before they end up down the conversion hole, you have to make sure that wherever they're touching that and wherever they're bouncing, it's a consistent message. And the other piece of that is you have to have an incredible differentiated product that you can prove, especially in our industry, works. I think the consumer is highly educated today and you have to build trust and That's done by having other people like influencers talk about your brand, ambassadors, but also you being able to back that up. That's one of the things I respect deeply about Paul is from the beginning, he's done more clinical research on the products and on the products on actual people than I've ever seen before. We do it for every single product to make sure that it does what we say it will do and that we know that people will have the results that we're expecting and hoping for them. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that really hits the nail on the head and what I was hoping to hear that, you know, because consumers are sharing their experiences much more broadly, whether they're compensated for their stories or not, people are talking about brands. I think brands need to realize that and embrace that, find ways to draw alliances with those sources of commercial information. Ultimately, all these factors benefit the end consumer because they're demanding higher quality products, higher quality marketing, but ultimately it's better products, better product experience. So in that vein, when you think about, you've been Uh, doing marketing for um, a long time. Think about customer acquisition and marketing today relative to, call it 10, 15 years ago, where there wasn't as much of a source of truth out there about products, not the way that it is today. Like, you know, when I think of the journey of of a platform like YouTube, for example, the way we're using YouTube now to source reviews and, you know, other people's experiences with products is, is very different than it was 10 years ago. So what's that like today? The, the, the challenge is marketing, call it 10, 15 years ago to now, what are the biggest changes that you've encountered? There's so many because one is that I think is an interesting evolution I've noticed is 10, 15 years ago, metrics and analytics were kind of like a a dorky thing. And I worked in direct mail. So I got early access to understanding cluster testing and KPIs and audience segmentation. And then I remember being in entertainment and no one really talking about KPIs, right? You were still doing kind of these print things and billboards and TV buys with limited accountability. And now it's almost, we've overcorrected. We're almost addicted to metrics. Like it's hard to, as a marketer today, to be like, I want to do this thing without being able to say, I'm going to get X, Y, and Z. I'm going to be able to prove it to you in this many days or weeks. Where marketing used to be a mix. And I think we actually have to figure out that balance again, because the way we built brands before was with a little bit of trust in upper funnel, things that weren't going to just immediately churn out KPIs. And creating custom KPIs for that. So saying, okay, guys, we're doing this, but we're not trying to make money. It's just an awareness play. So let's just look really hard at impression reach and quality of the traffic we get. 
if we make everything about conversion or adoption, we're really kind of choking out the brand development. Another piece that I think has changed a lot is that there was the digital transformation moment. So again, adoption into digital, whether that be performance marketing, social media, all of that initially was slow. And then we went through a really good adoption, I would say around 2014 to about 2020. Those six years were great. Then we had the pandemic. Everyone was kind of on this. It's all digital. It's, you know, drones are going to deliver everything. No one's going to go to stores. And what really happened, I think, is it oversaturated digital. And now we're in a situation where you can't do with digital what you could even five years ago because there's so many people marketing on it. There's so many people on it. There's so much content. You can't break through. So now you're actually seeing the cycle come back. Print media, outdoor guerrilla work. This is basically Mm -hmm. new radio. And I think that you're going to have to find a balance in your marketing so you can break through because it did get so crowded in the digital space. One of the things that I've learned from you in prior conversations is the the interest that you have at matter of fact to build out um, the brand, right? And have that brand mean something. One of the things that I see personally, sample size of one on platforms like Instagram, for example, is a lot of transactional sort of advertising. They're selling this product and it's a quick, almost like an impulse purchase to, to buy, but there's no real brand development happening. When you kind of think back to your early days of marketing, I remember you, you know, kind of sharing concepts around TRPs and things like that uh-huh. and, and building brands. Like, how do you think about that then? Yeah, I think building a brand solely in digital is exceptionally hard today. I think it was possible when Instagram wasn't littered with marketing as it is today. And so as a brand, you have to be careful too. So you don't, so people know that you're legitimate, right? It goes back to being able to feel legitimate. So that's the hard part with brand. And that's why I think there's this component of what you say, but then you have to have other people talking about it in a way that feels honest and feels informed and feels genuine and authentic, which is hard, but otherwise you'll constantly be in that point, the sales pitch that has become a lot of the social channels. And I think with the movement of TikTok shop, it's going to be a very interesting tipping point for that platform. It was huge mm-hmm. in China. Social shopping was big for about six, seven years. But they've also had their tipping point mm-hmm. where it's become oversaturated. Do I really believe what this person's telling me? So it'll be interesting to see how social moving into the social commerce space impacts itself becoming more of a transactional part of your brand versus the place where you used to build community and information and advocacy. And it's kind of flipping it a little bit than where it was five to seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of the changes that we're witnessing today are largely due to that modern buyer taking back control, not wanting to be sold to um, Mm -hmm. uh, all the time via blatant advertising. What channels have you found to be the most successful in customer acquisition today? When you talk about the brass tacks and things that you're, that you're doing to acquire customers, what are those channel strategies for you? I wish that there was just a lightning bolt answer for that because that would make my days much Mm -hmm. easier. It's hard right now. It used to be meta. Meta was a really cost-efficient means. And we all know that Apple made some changes. And since then, it's never quite been the same. So the cost on there has just kind of become unscalable uh, for a lot of brands, I think, at certain stages. So influencer is a big part of it because what I think is interesting about the platforms is I'm spending more money with influencers than I am with the platform now because the advertising isn't efficient as the reach and the potential I get with some of these phenomenal creators. I think being discovered as a brand on social is a lot harder. Um, No one goes to social media and goes, I want to find matter of fact today. They go and they look at cool content and what they're talking about. And that's how you kind of become a part of the conversation. So that's a key part of it. 
Lower funnel has worked well, but that's more past acquisition. And then collaborations, partnering with like-minded brands and like-minded people that have similar approaches to what they do and maybe are complementary is a really great way for us to build that out as a small brand. And then the typical grassroots stuff, right? Ambassadors, referral mm-hmm. program. We have hardcore fans of our products. People use it and then they swear off everything else. They love it. So if I can take that and fuel it, that's the most genuine form of marketing, right? It used to be called word of mouth marketing. And everyone tried to figure out where that was coming from. And that's been decades of that. So I think it's that same piece for us. That's the most efficient is using those ambassadors and advocates in real life and online to kind of help spread the word. Yeah, I mean, that's quite an evolution when you think about it. I don't want to go too far back, but, you know, you used to be able to get your message out via TV and radio even or, or other print. And I think because there was less uh, competition, that was a, maybe a more successful strategy. You look at digital, it used to be a lot easier. There was a silver bullet. It was called Google paid search, right? You yeah. just you know, pay a certain price and you're at the top of the sponsored listings. And I think you're right. I think there has been a lot of saturation in the market of choice. What I'm hearing you say is that rather than getting in there and fight the competition of traditional ads, find people who command an audience, who have a trusted relationship with an audience or a base of customers, draw an alliance with them, form a partnership with them and let them, you know, speak on your behalf. It's so funny because I was talking to someone on my influencer team about how we used to talk about TRPs and that's how old I am, total rating points and frequency and reach. And how now we talk about follower counts and and retention of reach and retention of quality of impressions, everything. Like we have all these new metrics that are very different. And it's interesting because I was watching football last week on YouTube live and I had these ads come up and they were all clearly targeted to me. They were all skincare, hair care, beauty brands. And I sat there and I was like, man, I remember buying on ESPN or ABC on football. And the assumption was it was mainly men. And there was a there was only a very specific amount of inventory. And that was it. Now we have infinite inventory. It's just evolved so much of how do you pick and how do you target and how do you know your audience well enough to know that, you know, Erin, who loves skincare, also loves her fantasy football and, and her Buffalo Bills. And so find her on YouTube live on Thursdays and Sundays. And that's a lot to think about. It was so much simpler, you know, 30 years ago. Back then, you would see an ad, be influenced by that ad and, and go and buy a product with, with limited research. Now, I would say the common modern buyer journey is when you find out about something, let's say in that football experience, you find out about a product, the first thing that people are going to do, tell me if you disagree, is get online, see what other people have to say about that product essentially, right? So I would argue that, you know, you're not relevant as a brand today unless other people are talking about you. So funny. I actually feel the influencers are evolving the platform versus the platforms moving towards what the influencers need because they're just on the pulse of it much more than the platforms. They can move faster. I feel that the balance between sales and collabs with value is going to be an interesting thing to watch both of them deal with. So like I mentioned, Meta could be making so much more money if they figured how to monetize the content versus just the ads. It's the economy of all of this. It's all dollars. And seeing how that evolves and how the algorithm will adjust for that because, you know, ultimately what is earned media anymore? And it's really hard to get truly earned media and grassroots anymore. Somebody wants free product or they want an affiliate link or they want to be paid for the content they created. So I think watching how the platform algorithms adjust to what's genuine content versus collab and partner content will be interesting 
I think they have a real chance if they balance the valuable content to a consumer versus just the transactional content. And that's going to be in how the algorithm plays. Yeah. And talking to a lot of creators, they want longer term relationships also. They don't want to be seen as this transactional, okay, you know, today or this week, you know, here I am talking about a different brand. I think the more successful ones are playing the long game. Is there an example of an influencer partnership in the beauty space that you can highlight as a, as a partnership done right? Yes, it's hot off the press, but Mac just did some really cool stuff with Tube Girl. He dances in the tube in like the subway and she's, you know, a lifestyle influencer who makes fun content, but she's not a beauty influencer, right? That's not her initial platform. And so I even have to call myself out on that in that a lot of times as the head of marketing, you're like, oh, but they're fashion. Instead of being like, oh, what's a creative way we could use this person? And they loved her content. They loved that she was an ex- she was ex- creative expression, which aligns so perfectly with the Mac brand. It's all about creative expression. Has been from the beginning. Again, consistency. And so they reached out to her, and she made a video. But then they had her walk on the runway at one of their shows recently. So they also took it from online to offline, and they've made it also beneficial to her. She's now just not tube girl. She's tube girl who has walked in a show and has Mac and like has done a beauty thing and can kind of bend and has that flexibility. So it's mutually beneficial. So I thought that one was really amazing. And I, I've been a fan of Mac on a lot of levels and they've stayed so true to themselves over the years. And it shows in those kind of activations. And it was fun. That was fun. I love that example. Another hot topic that I, I always come across is how brands compensate different partnerships, especially influencers and creators that they work with. In your experience, how do creators like to be compensated for their work? And what do you recommend for other brands? It really depends on the creator and the brand and the stage of the relationship. I think in the beginning, most creators are going to look for some sort of commitment, some sort of transactional experience. But as they get to know you and you can build that relationship, you can expand it. There are some that know their lane, though. There are some that are like, I sell product really well and I want a cut of that. I'll make more selling in a cut of it than I will if you pay me per post or per video. And so I think it's about having Mm -hmm. an open dialogue, just like you have to about the type of approach to content and what they're going to make about what serves your business and serves them knowing how their quote unquote economy works. Um, Are they mainly upper funnel and you want to do a lot of awareness and they get a lot of views, but they're not going to get a ton of clicks and like purchases or are they more middle lower funnel where they're like people buy the stuff. So I've also seen a lot of hybrid where they get paid a little bit for the content and then they're an affiliate partner and they can get a lot from, you know, a variety of different platforms. We use Shop My Shelf, for example. So it really depends on the creator knowing where they think they're the strongest and then a brand supporting that. I think you have to be flexible to make the whole kind of economy work well for everybody. It also depends on where it sits in the marketing funnel too, right? So, I mean, we've got a couple of creators that their purpose is really to tell a very key part of the brand story and they come with extreme credentials, their MDs or PhDs. And so that comes with its own KPI value for me that's different than somebody like, I know a couple influencers who can sell for us. They can talk about it. They have honest reviews. They show their results and it sells. So I can justify a large payment for a single piece of content because its purpose is different 
than somebody I have a long-term, just like ongoing relationship with to sell products. I think it definitely makes sense because as you pointed out, you're incentivizing creators, creators to be a marketer for your, for your brand, but also a salesperson. So having an incentive for them to keep working towards your brand. So yeah, a really good example where kind of a hybrid model or a post plus model makes sense. Okay, we're nearing the end here, Aaron. Just to wrap up our conversation, I always like to ask, what trends are you paying attention to right now? So I would say my core trend is to not easily get distracted by trends. You've got to focus on your own audience and maximize that. I do think that there's moments though, right? So making, especially a small brand like us, you know, TikTok shop being in beta and some of the ability to get on that quickly, you can leverage the fact that you know they're going to benefit people who are on the shop and the algorithm and it can kind of be a little hack. Same thing with YouTube shorts right now. That content platform is well benefited in the algorithm because it's new and they're trying to kick it off, right? There was a moment where if you if you leveraged it, you know, those moments are great, but that doesn't mean to fully pivot your strategy, right? It's kind of additive to take advantage of those moments to hack. So for me, it's really making sure that you know your audience and which trends apply to it. So Gen Z is a huge topic. There's an article every day, every hour about Gen Z, but that doesn't mean that I need to build a whole strategy around Gen Z. You know, it can be a distraction to kind of the focus. And so just making sure that you're paying attention to those. I think another trend that I really love is making moments out of things instead of mentions. So making moments instead of mentions. I talked about Mac doing what they did, but I also really admire K18. They do a lot of really amazing stuff in the creator and influencer space, but they have a great instant results product, which works really well in social content, but they go above that. They could just leverage the before and after and like the story, but they see creators and consumers as people. And so they search and they find people who are having breakage issues with their hair or having some sort of hair crisis. And then they send their pro stylist teams to help them and to use the product and to get them into whether it's a wedding or a prom or they're experiencing something. And ultimately that's the core of what social was supposed to be, right? It was based in humanity. It was based in community. And so that's a trend I hope comes back more is using it around humanity and community, which I think K18 did a really great job with how they're activating there. Yeah, and I'm assuming that with all that, still holding on to the authenticity aspect of it as well, not doing it you know, with, with the constant intention just to keep promoting your brand. It's at the end of the day, just being a hell of a lot more relevant to people today, right? Nobody, again, wants to be sold to. Well, thank you, Aaron. That was awesome. Thank you for uh, joining us on this episode of the Partnership Economy Podcast. We cover a wide range of topics. Can't wait to watch Matter of Fact continue to grow. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time on the Partnership Economy Podcast. There's a lot to unpack from this episode. One point that stood out to me was just how difficult customer acquisition is today. Channels that used to be efficient, like Meta, have become increasingly expensive and oversaturated. All of these trends lead to brands needing other people to talk about them in a way that feels genuine and honest and not like a sales pitch. It sounds like Matter of Fact is seeing success with partnerships when it comes to building their brand, whether that's working directly with creators, partnering with like-minded brands, or turning customers into strong brand ambassadors. Aaron highlighted the point that the customer journey today is no longer linear And I like the analogy that she offered up instead, that consumers move along a pinball machine. You don't know where your audience is going to hear your message, whether that's on a podcast or through an affiliate. 
so you need to ensure that your message is consistent across wherever that ball is touching. This is why it's so important to have a truly differentiated product and build strong relationships with partners so that they know how to speak about your brand. I really enjoyed this conversation with Aaron. I can't wait to see what Matter of Fact does next. Thank you, Aaron, for joining us on the Partnership Economy Podcast. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Partnership Economy brought to you by Impact.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts.